0: Dear listeners, uh, welcome to the Let's Not Be Lazy Filmmakers podcast. I just want to uh, update you on a situation that happened before you listen to our next guest, Paul Carvalho. Evan, do you want to come in here and just tell us, kind of give us a little bit of info about Paul?
1: Well, Paul um, sadly passed away uh, a little about a week and a half ago. And um, when you and I recorded the podcast, uh, I guess a month ago. Um, he was, uh, he was not in great shape, but he, he was really wonderful with us and what we thought would be a, a short, uh, interview ended up becoming close to two hours, I believe. And he was yeah. really generous with his, yeah, he was really generous with his time and his wisdom and his knowledge. And he was an incredibly gracious host. We, we, we recorded in his, uh, in his, uh, in his house. And, um, I really uh, hope the listener, uh, appreciates, uh, uh, Appreciates this episode and gets a gets a little bit behind the scenes knowledge of his films and his legacy. We met Paul, uh, Noah, and I met Paul through painter Cynthia Davis. Her son Jonah is uh, on the spectrum, and so we we met the two of them. And, and you and you and I developed quite a close relationship with Cynthia, and um, and she suggested speaking to Paul and doing a and doing a podcast on him, knowing that he didn't have a lot of time left. And it was uh, it was wonderful for us to. To, of course to do that and uh and it was a really uh it was a memorable uh, afternoon for me and you i think
0: yeah it was i i think we didn't realize quite how little time he had left but um there it is
1: yeah i hope that the the listener uh really feels inspired by listening to his uh his wisdom and like i said his his, his great stories about the movies that he's made over the years and um rest in peace paul
0: yeah thank you paul
1: Thanks for doing this, Paul.
2: For sure. Um, My pleasure to be here with you guys. Thanks for thinking of me for your podcast.
1: A great pleasure. Um,
2: Paul, how did you get started? I, did, you, weren't, you came into filmmaking, it seems, in your 40s. but I wanted to be a filmmaker since I was 15 years old. Uh, I saw a film by Francois Truffaut called The 400 Blows. And uh, when that film came to an end... I thought, I want to do that. Hmm. I never got to make um, feature films as I wanted to, but I thought there was a chance with documentaries. And I thought there was an even bigger chance in Canada, if I came to Canada, to make them. Uh, And uh, uh, I accomplished uh, a life goal that I had traced in my mind when I arrived here in Montreal at the age of 25. I thought, I'm going to start with a Portuguese language, working for Radio Canada International. At one point, I'm going to do English language radio, which I did with Sunday Morning, the documentary radio show, which was extraordinarily prestigious at that time. Uh, Then I thought, I'm going to do television news and short documentaries just to work with images, because that's important. And at one point, I'll bail out and I'll make documentaries I want to make. And uh, point by point, I accomplished exactly that. And in 1996, I found myself wanting to bail out. And there was a colleague in the newsroom, uh, John Curtin, who also wanted to get out. Uh, and make documentaries. He had just made a personal documentary about his dad, who was a Canadian photographer, who, uh, his name is Walter Curtin, Uh, Walter had just, when he was a young man, escaped uh, Vienna, Nazi Vienna, in one of the last trains, out. And John wanted to tell that story and much more about his dad in his family, and in making that film, he taught himself to make documentaries. And he asked me whether I would come in and tell him uh, what I thought of the doc, <clears throat> and I came in and told him what I thought. It was obviously very usable commentary and criticism uh, because I continued to do that with John's films, throughout his life we went out in 1996 it's no coincidence because Canada at just about that time had created a documentary film structure where you could go and get money from telefilm camera Canada mm. and in the case of Quebec from lasso deck plus there were funds like the Rogers fund the Bell Media Fund For the first time, there was a structure and uh, we were two guys who were straight out of the television world. We knew pretty much how to do this and uh, it's not as if there weren't a learning curve. Uh, There was because making a four-minute little doc uh, for Newswatch is not at all the same as making a one-hour film. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have to... Uh, rely much more on sound, on atmosphere, let it breathe, have moments of silence, use music. It's a different thing. It's the difference between a short story and a novel. You can't jump from short storyteller to novelist in one fell swoop. For some, it's easy. Uh, For others, it's a learning process. Anyway, John and I made a few films, Uh, And then we went our separate ways. Uh, But uh, even the films we made, well, remember, we made one film about a Canadian photographer in Moscow. We went to Moscow together to make this film about this uh, photographer. Uh, And uh, we were extraordinarily happy to be there. And John did the camera, I did the sound and uh, we edited these films together. John was more at the controls, but I was constantly there saying, we should do it like this, we should do it like that. And John found that kind of a uh, symbiosis, uh, very uh, heartwarming, I guess, because we managed to do several films like that. Then we went to the Canadian Arctic to make another film.
1: Paul, can you give me the names of those film for, films for our viewers and where they can find them?
2: Let me just get to the, uh, to the end of it. Um, the Arctic. Uh, the, um, the, yes, the film about the Arctic was called King of the Arctic. Uh, and I don't know that it can be found anywhere these days, unfortunately. The film about uh, the Canadian photography photographer, her name was Heidi.
1: Flirting with the opposition. Correct, exactly. Flirting with the opposition, and this is available. Nineteen
2: ninety six. On Nineteen ninety six. This is available on your website. It, this is unfortunately not. I should have put it on my website. There's so many films I made afterwards. This is the one that was left behind. But it mm. was a fun film to make, and Heidi Hollinger was incredibly uh, accommodating. And there we were in crazy Russia yeah. at a very particular moment when. Uh, the uh, uh, the barbarians had descended uh, down on the city on Moscow and began to control everything uh, again. There was a moment of freedom, a moment of disorder, and because the leadership was weak, uh, and the leader was a drunk. Uh, but uh, Yeltsin, the Yeltsin, Yeltsin. Yeah, uh, but at least. The atmosphere was uh, incredibly exuberant after so many years of dictatorship. People wanted to eat in restaurants. People wanted to get rich. Uh, People wanted... There were some 10 casinos in Mm -hmm. Moscow, and Heidi went around taking photos of people in the casinos and selling them to to them. And uh, it was an incredible thing. We were at... In the inner sanctum of Pravda, the famous uh, newspaper that had been at the core uh, of the uh, Communist Party of Russia in their time, they produced something like one million copies a day. Vladimir Lenin himself had been one of the editors there, and his uh, painting of his was still on the wall. And so it was eerie uh, to be there and experience all of this. The thing about being a filmmaker is I don't think I've made all the money I wanted. Uh, I don't think I have made all the films I wanted to make. But I've had some extraordinary experiences. I pinch myself and I say, did I really do this? Was I really there? Uh,
1: my question was, were you worried about your safety? But I guess it was so exuberant that you didn't really worry about your safety at that time.
2: You know, I'm extremely cautious in my personal life. I never make any stupid mistakes or take stupid risks. Uh, I uh, am happy to... <laughs> my idea of a, uh, a daring expedition is to take a walk to my favorite cafe. Uh, but when it came to uh, what I needed to do to make my films, there was no limit. I just did it. Hmm. And uh, it was the same thing when I was a reporter for Sunday morning. I found myself in Port-au-Prince, one of the most dangerous cities in the world, in the middle of a demonstration where shots rang out. Uh, I found myself... In, in the heart of Africa, uh, with Margaret Trudeau no less. She was going to inaugurate a water well uh, for people who didn't have water in their village uh, and people who did not eat with uh, knives and forks because they'd never seen a knife and fork. I was in Moscow, uh, which was even then a vile place. And I ran through the streets of Moscow with Heidi Hollinger and John a curtain. We ran right into Red Square uh, in our jogging outfits and the Moscovites came out to watch us because the idea of these uh, Westerners running through their city and into Red Square was so bizarre to them. Hmm. Uh, so <laughs> wow. I, I loved all these things uh, and uh, I can't say that Uh, I have missed out on the beauty and the danger of the world. And because I haven't been in any war zones, but I've been in danger. Not that I ever courted danger. And I do not subscribe to the romance of personal danger. I hate it. Hmm. Uh, But if I needed to do something that was mildly dangerous, such as flying over Alaska in little planes for four years I did it <clears throat> is that something you that's something you actually did yes King of the, King of the Arctic okay. no and this was a film called Dark Wave uh, for which uh, it was made by Robert Cornelier directing and Robert was the, the producer I was the co-producer and I did all of the interviews for this film so this
1: was the black wave, the legend, the, leg- the legacy of the Exxon Valdez.
2: Exactly. 2009. Exactly. For of Canada and CBC. It was the 20th anniversary of the uh, Exxon Valdez oil spill. So about 15 years after mm-hmm. the oil spill, Robert Cornelia came to me and he said, you know, I've just visited some of these polluted areas in the world where terrible, terrible things have happened. And he said, uh, I understood that that terrible things could have happened and not been repaired in a country like uh, India, Bhopal, India. There was a chemical spill that killed a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And he went back and found that nothing much had changed. He said, that's okay, it's India. But he said, I never thought that this would be the case in the United States. There was a little town called Cordova in Alaska uh, where some of the fish never came back. And uh, Exxon fought the people of Cordova tooth and nail for years and years on end so that these people would just die off and not collect uh, their uh, due uh, for the immense dam- damage. That was done at the time and that continued to be done because some fish never came back. These people used to have to work a short season and make $120,000 with no problem and suddenly they were making $20,000 and people in the village were committing suicide. It was a humongous project, but we found an incredible American scientist who understood about Oil pollution and what it does to our oceans, this is something that we're living with today intensely. Uh, But at the time, uh, hearing Ricky Ott, uh, the scientist, was like listening to somebody who came from outer space to warn us about dangers that seemed absolutely incomprehensible to us. So I interviewed her for many days about many things because she was there when The oil spill happened. She was one of the fishers there, and Exxon never expected to have a scientist uh, who knew about the chemical power of oil to destroy our oceans. They never expected that she'd be there uh, to fight them. So,
0: did that film have uh, an impact?
2: That film had a huge impact. It got the Gemini for best director uh, for Robert Cornelier. It was played in Toronto to a full house of people uh, and there must have been a thousand people in there. And Australia was living through a tremendous oil spill at the time. They were very angry about that. So the ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, uh, bought the film and uh, played it when everybody was very keyed in, uh, wow. they could see themselves in our film. Did
0: you, at the beginning, when, you, when someone, I don't know who, first proposed this film, did you know that it was going to be something that you'd get a fire in your belly about?
2: I knew that this would be an enormously challenging thing, that we would need to go back to uh, Alaska, more than once, uh, and uh, that it would be long and tedious to make. In some ways, uh, you just have to stay the course and keep on doing the interviews, hoping that somehow this is going to gel into a film, but it was humongous. Mm -hmm. Uh, I thought we were going to go at it for about two years, and the rest would be editing, In reality, the whole thing took more than four years. The salary looked really good when I started, and then when I started dividing it into so many more years, it was not so appealing anymore. Uh, But the film surpassed my expectations, uh, and I'm very proud of it. Unfortunately, it's kind of hard to find today. I would have put it in my website because I am so happy about it, but... Cornelier, Robert Cornelier, is the rightful owner of the film and for reasons that are inscrutable to me. He does not want to put the film either in my website or in his website. So this is very sad. This is a Gemini
1: award-winning film. Correct. It should be even available on CBC's Gemini streaming platform.
2: Quite possibly. You look it up and I hope you find it. If so, let me know. I thought of... uh, doing something subversive, breaking faith with my good friend Robert and putting the film on in my website Uh, and that will be that Uh, because the film deserves to be there.
1: Why do you think he's gone quiet with this project?
2: I have no idea. I don't even want to venture an opinion because it seems so utterly inexplicable to me. Anyway, the greatest of uh, most important thing I did was neither in Moscow nor in the heart of Africa. It was really right here in Montreal. Because Rajoha Canada had discovered me. Uh, there was a moment when it seemed like nothing I proposed to CBC uh, was working. They weren't interested. And increasingly... This place, Montreal, was like the Regions. Oh, I'm like the guy from the Regions. Still is. Yes. Back to that. Mm. Yes, exactly. So so what happened was that uh, I had made a film, a historical film using photos. I've always loved photography, particularly historical black and white photography. What was the title of that film, Paul? That that title was Paul Sauvé, désormais l'avenir. And uh, I made this film for them simply because Paul Sauvé had been premier of Quebec in uh, 1959 for a total of three months. And he died. All his documentation that would have made it possible for the Quebecois to make a film disappeared mysteriously with him. And the story was that at the time, the Québécois, neither the CBC nor their libraries, were very conscious of the importance of keeping and preserving and fighting for their history to be kept in good condition. Hmm. So where did this documentation go? To the attic of the family. One day it comes out of the attic, and uh, it lands on the desk of a museologist, very good friend of mine, called Paul Labonne. And uh, Labonne writes a book about it, Uh, L-A-B-O-N-N-E, Paul Labonne. He writes a little book with some magnificent black-and-white photos because in those days, they brought out a professional photographer, not some idiot with an iPhone. Uh, And so what you have is stuff that was preserved for all time. Uh, Excellent lighting and everything. These people dressed for the occasion. And a photograph was an important event in itself. And uh, I said to Le Bon, well, what did this guy do, Uh, this Paul Sauvé, who was in power for such a short time? He said, well, he was the precursor of the quiet revolution. La Révolution Tranquille. Uh, He made it possible for the liberals to come in after that and to make all the reforms they did, because he made the first reforms. And so, he was, this guy, was on top of that. Paul Sauvé had been a war hero for Canada. So, there were some great shots of him in military uniform in Europe. I thought, I'm doing this. So, I went with Paul Sauvé, I'm sorry. So I went with Paul Le to Radio-Canada, and I said, uh, here, would you like to make this film? And they said to me, Monsieur, vous savez, nous avons la fierté d'avoir fait la biographie de tous les premiers ministres du Québec, wow. sauf uh, Monsieur Paul Sauvé, parce qu'on ne pouvait pas trouver la documentation. Donc, nous allons travailler avec vous. <laughs> Just to translate, uh, for those who don't know, they said to me, we are going to work with you because we have had the pride of making the biographies of all uh, the uh, premiers of Quebec, I- except for this one, because we couldn't find the visual documentation. You have found it. You have already, with Paul LeBon, Paul LeBon has already written a short book about it, Make it into a film. So I did. And the film was a gem for me. I was very happy to make it. Uh, Working with tens of thousands of photos that are there in front of you and finding out how to tell a story with those photos, a story that's credible, that holds up, Mm -hmm. that's exciting. That is quite a trick in itself. And I could do it. The Quebecois Radio Canada, so that I could do it, and so I was all set up for my next move. Uh, Paul LeBon said to me, uh, "Paul, I am now uh, the head of a museum in Oshawa, On the second floor of this museum, there is we have an enormous number of." industrial photographs, uh, for photographs, uh, because we have an enormous number of industrial photographs, because Auchelaga uh, Maisonneuve used to be la Cité de Maisonneuve, which was a growing affair. It was the first industrial suburb of Montreal, and here they made shoes, they made boats, uh, they made even airplanes. There you have a photo. Le Soleil se lève à l'Est. The Sun Rises in the East was the French name for this film. And uh, when I went up to the second floor of this museum in Osalaga, I thought that Paul uh, was BSing me and that I was going to find five or six photos. Like people often think that. You can build a whole documentary in five or six they don't realize that five or six photos will last for less than a minute in front of the camera Uh, the uh, documentary devours photos at an incredible rate Hmm. so he had hundreds and hundreds of extremely high quality photos because a number of militant intellectuals from oshalaga young Québécois, from the community, who were suddenly, for the first time ever, educated, did not want this industrial past to disappear. They were proud of it, and they accumulated all of this as these industries were, call- were closing in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, this used to be a thriving industrial place. Later, the, in- the, the Hell's Angels The children of these unemployed laborers came and destroyed everything and killed people. And this place became known for Les Piqueries, which Mm. is where people, the shooting galleries, where people went to inject themselves with drugs. Uh, But at the time, up to the mid-1970s, this was a proud, working-class neighborhood. Uh And it was completely up my alley to make this film. That was not too hard because I was there with Radio Kanada and I said to them, "I want to make this film." Uh, which is, uh, they said, "Well, really, it's the story of a neighborhood. Uh, why would you want to?" And I thought they understood nothing. <laughs> uh, and I said to them, "Man, you spent seven hundred thousand dollars of." Your money and Canadian money to send us all the way to Alaska. Look out your window. It is snowing as if it were in Alaska, but it's snowing in Oshilaga, Maisonneuve. That's what it is. That's what you're looking at on the other side of this glass. I said, you know nothing about it, shouldn't you? Did you say this actually to them? I said that to them in a moment of Latin extravagance and I thought they were going to kick me out of there. But no, 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 no. Uh, The Quebecois mentality and the Anglo mentality are different. If you said that to an Anglo producer, he would kick you out with no second thought. With the Quebecois, given that we already had a relationship that was important, they said to us, oh, um, wait, wait, uh, in a month you'll have another chance to repitch and at that time the top boss is going to be here with us uh, so we can make a better decision mm. sure enough i came back in a month and i brought my whole team
1: <laughs> that's a
0: pretty fine bit of strategy
1: so what year was this paul sorry what year was this
2: this would have been in uh, 2008 2009 To brought your
1: whole team into the big for the big Tahuna, Kahuna?
2: Yes, exactly. So this guy comes in. He barely speaks at all. He's constantly looking at his telephone. And he's like, uh, has minimum interest in you. We give our pitch. And uh, he says, oh. He says, yeah, Oshalaga Mizonev. He says, yeah. I had an uncle who used to work there in a factory. I thought, oh, (laughs) this is a good start. (laughs) And I gave him the pit and he said well you guys why don't you just uh create one film a year you go from neighborhood to neighborhood you can do saint lawrence boulevard you can do uh you can do old montreal and uh, so on and so forth we had we came out of there and uh, i looked at my young gang uh, and i said to them Guys, do you believe that we have worked for the next six years now? Wow. We don't have to beg anybody. We're going to make this, these films for the next six years together. And we did.
0: What is it that you think made him give you all the other neighborhoods too? Aside
1: from your credible passion. Yeah.
2: Yes. First of all, I was a given quantity. They had seen my previous work and they knew that I could do it. I had done the uh, Paul Sauvé film, and they knew that was an excellent film. They were losing nothing. They couldn't trust me with it. Uh, The other element is that the 2017 anniversary of the city of Montreal, uh, the 375th anniversary, was coming up. Nobody remembers because in the newsroom, everybody has the memory of a gnat. You only remember the last five minutes and you're worried about the next five minutes. Uh, But this guy, the big boss, was above the fray and he was a big boss for a reason. He was looking at, oh, in a few years we're going to get 2017 and we're going to have nothing to show people. So let's show the films as they get made, as you deliver them. And then in 2017, for an entire week, we will show... All of the films, one each night, and pretty good distribution. That is fantastic. And uh, so uh, that was an incredible feeling.
1: <laughs> Talk about t- taking an opportunity, right and coming in and then the timing of it. Timing and opportunity creates
2: exactly. arts, documentary. I, I, I absolutely. I also think, but I'm purely speculating here, that the history of uh, Quebec and Montreal is a very fraught history because the separatists want to say it one way, uh, the conservatives want to say it another way, and I was the outsider. They knew that I was not Anglo. They knew I was not Franco. They knew I wasn't going to carry anybody's partisan flag. That I just loved the history. Uh, And I think this might have been appealing and safe for these guys. Not that I didn't talk about the important things that needed to be mentioned, but they felt a degree of comfort with me. That I wasn't going to say anything crazy, and that I was going to make films that were highly skilled in their presentation, that would just be good TV, something beautiful to look at. And all the films were that. Mm -hmm. And because I was there year after year. So, that was an incredible pleasure. And when I finished that, all the films were in French. But now, I thought, I'm going to translate them into English. I did the English language narration because I had been a reporter for many years. And I also did all the captioning with the help of a master captionist, if you want. But I did all the translation myself. So it all looked fantastic on the screen, and I sold it to local PBS stations right across the border who wanted to show these films to an English-language audience. Unfortunately, I think these films didn't probably do well with the English audience uh, just the fact that I kept the original name, Montreal, Mon Amour, Mon Histoire, for the series. Right. Now, when you think about the degree of partisan resentment that the English still harbor towards the French, the uh, French name for the history of the city wasn't going to go down very well. And I was naive enough to think that people would be above the fray and enjoy this history, which is mostly. Uh, 19th century history coming right up to uh, the late 60s. And I left out the whole part that begins in 1970, in which I lived as a reporter, uh, the part of the confrontation between the English and the French. I thought this people know what they don't know is how the city was put together piece by piece, how Mount Royal Park came together how St. Lawrence Boulevard became uh, the boulevard of immigrants. Why was Montreal founded here in the first place? Because of the Lachine Rapids. The boats couldn't get through uh, to go inland. Uh, So people had to discharge their merchandise here and take it uh, by cart, by horse cart, into Lachine. And there... All those goods would be put into new boats that were waiting there, which would then follow and go inland. And that was the situation for a good hundred years. So all these things and more, I explained, were the top flight historians that French Canada could offer. Uh, It's too bad that the films cannot be appreciated uh, in Montreal, in the English language community of Montreal. Because of this uh, narrowness of the mind, which is inescapable, partisanship leads to stupidity, and this is not correctable.
1: Hmm. Do you, are your film are those are those the, those five films available on PBS still? Those five films are they available on Those PBS? films
2: are available on my website, uh, PaulCarvallo. dot com. Uh,
1: I remember uh, knowing about you when you were a reporter mm. at CBC and then I was introduced to those films mm. because my, I had a film in 2018 on PBS mm. about Cantor, the history of Cantola music in Montreal and I went mm-hmm. down to PBS and they were getting your, getting your films ready for broadcast. And that's with the name Paul Carvalho.
2: Correct. The films would be there somewhere. They are. Oh, they are yeah. there. Um, there's also, uh, you can buy them I believe, on Amazon in a box that is English and French. Uh, that is DVD, standard DVD, and Blu-ray. Wow. Whatever you got, you can play. And you can go to my website and watch them for free. Nice. Yeah.
1: Would you say that you have a, an attraction to making f- historical documentaries? And, is, and part of that is because of your love of photography?
2: You don't know what you have in you to become. Uh, And if you had told me 20 years ago that you are going to be the unofficial historian, television historian of the city of Montreal, I would have said, come on, get out of here. I want to make many other things. But by a process of elimination, I was left with no option than making films about Montreal. Uh, I wanted to make films about the Palestinians in the Middle East. I wanted to make films about uh, the uh, the climactic tragedy that was beginning to uh, become clear in Latin America because I am of Latin American origin. I am Brazilian. I still have a Brazilian passport. And, and I wanted to make many other uh, films that were of a more social nature. But... Uh, They chose me to become this. They saw that I had that ability. And indeed, I had that ability since the time I was a child because my father was an anthropologist, but he was also a photographer uh, who took pictures of his children uh, with a a Leica camera. And he had a tripod uh, and he had lights. And this is all in the mid-1950s. These photos that you see here that unfortunately our public cannot see are photos of me uh, when I was perhaps five or six years old.
1: Very cute.
2: They they tell a story together and they were even published because my father lit them so beautifully. So in these photos, the first photo, I am experiencing writer's block in front of a typewriter. The second photo, I smoke a cigarette to wow. try to uh, change my ideas and see how I tackle this. In the third and fourth photos, I do more research. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> this is your whole process up here. Exactly. It's just, it's just, I'll get to this in a just second. foreshadowing all of this. But for, for the fifth photo, I am pointing a finger at the camera, and I'm saying, Eureka! Mm. My mm. father explained what Eureka meant. He said, you have to <laughs> shout, Eureka! And I did in the sixth sixth and last photo. I am back writing because the uh, writer's block is no more. He conditioned me for the entire lifetime to Mm -hmm. come. This. He implanted it. He created the program and he put it in my brain. And I went through this process. A thousand times. There was no writer's block that could not be conquered.
1: So, a film you didn't talk about, which Cynthia, who you've introduced so eloquently, called me before we arrived here, was The Geometry of Love. Yes. So, and I watched a little bit of it, beautiful movie. So, and it's available on your website. It's also a topic that Noah is quite passionate about. Hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, about that film,
2: 2006, Geometry of Love? Correct. This film is the great enigma of my life, hmm. uh, because even then, I was not religious. I was, if you could say, adamantly anti-Catholic, and since then, I've become a rabid atheist. Uh, so why the hell would I make a film that all happens inside a church? Uh, Uh, with uh, a Greco-Roman historian who tells us the history of that church and why that church uh, can inspire feelings of uh, mysticism. Uh, Well, this film was a failing proposition. The two producers who were making it had proposed it uh, to... uh, television station in toronto that specializes in uh remind me of vision Vision television these two producers uh uh, colin neal and bev bliss had uh submitted this film the proposal the idea to Vision Television in Toronto, and Vision said, this interests us very much uh, because the person at the center of this project would have been a Canadian Greco-Roman historian uh, called Margaret Visser, uh, who had taught uh, history of Greece and Rome, uh, history of early Christianity, uh, to students at the University of Toronto, and she became very well-known by talking about everything in on CBC radio. And she could tell you the history of why things are the way they are today, why we won't eat certain things, uh, why we would favor other things because of this obscure ancient history. So Margaret Visser was a known quantity. But the producers came to me and they said, Paul, we have submitted this film. And they have turned down our proposal. Our problem is we've already spent $60,000 of our own money to develop this film. And now they're going to say no. within two weeks' time, they're going to make a final decision. And we've got to have a director and we've got to have a completely new proposal because it was the last proposal that has sank the film. I believe it was a proposal that was given to a Québécois a, a director who wanted to do some kind of a, an anti-Catholic rant mm-hmm. uh, with this. Uh, and so I may be mistaken about that, uh, but I have the clear recollection that this was some kind of ultra-modernist trying to d- do a kind of super left-wing take on this uh Catholic Church and now uh, I said okay I'm going to take it and I must be honest with you and tell you the only reason I took this on was because at that point I was starving as a filmmaker I had nothing I was contemplating bankruptcy and here they came and they said you're going to be the writer and the director and we will take care of all the production matters and Rome is Rome it's not me. So, would you like to make a film in Rome? (laughs) So, here we go. So, I read the book in three days. This is uh, a pretty thick tome of some 350 pages. I read it. I created a proposal, uh, which that took about five or six more days. And we just submitted this right under the line. They have accepted it. And uh, so Colin Neal, the producer, said, we're going to go to Rome first. We cannot fail. We, I want you to see the church. Make friends uh, with the priests and uh, so that when we arrive, they won't be frightened of us. Hmm. And that was very, very important because at the time, there were all these films um, denigrating the catholic church uh including the dan brown novel uh in which da vinci the da vinci code and the the poor uh, priests were terrified mm-hmm. uh, that we were coming in to do some horrible job on them a hit job exactly now the beautiful thing is when we arrived there is that i knew some italian And these Italian priests had often spent years in missions in Brazil. They felt more welcomed in Brazil than just about anywhere else in the world. And because our characters are so similar culturally. And so, oh, bring out the cheese, bring out the wine, and uh, you're in the house, my friend. (laughs) That's great. So that helped, and it helped me to organize the film in my mind. What was appealing about this was not only that the church had 20 centuries of history in it, uh, but also it came back to the moment that Christianity was founded and Margaret Visser could explain it in an utterly appealing way. They were the communists of the time. They were the rebels of the time, overthrowing the Roman Empire to create uh, something that the common people could believe in and feel safe in. I, they gave me less time to make this film than I have ever had. A total of nine days. And uh, but they took care of everything. Whatever I said to them I need, they got. I said, uh, I need a professional dolly like they use in the movies. Mm. Lo and behold, it appeared. I said, I need a top quality camera. They took it from here. They, I know they paid a lot of money. And I said, I need a, a top uh, cameraman who is no amateur by any stretch of the imagination. Hmm. And they gave me a most formidable fellow whom I always wished I had worked with again, a Canadian from the Canadian West. Hmm. And we all gathered for the first time. We shot for a couple of days in Toronto. And Margaret Visser had said something to me like, "Uh, I will talk to you about everything, but I will not tell anybody about the fact that I had Two conversations with God. I said, oh, well, okay, ma'am. We'll, of course, not talk about that. And my mind was already way ahead of the game. I thought, of course, you're going to talk about it, you fool. <laughs> and yeah. of course, when gently pushed into the fray, she talked about how uh, she had talked about it. I, I, I thought to myself, wait a second, people go on TV And they say the most atrociously personal things uh, about themselves and how uh, disgusting things, the things that should remain private. Why wouldn't your encounter with God not be allowed on TV? Why shouldn't somebody hear that? uh,
1: Personalizes the story significantly.
2: Correct. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And there was a time in the 19th century when people uh, had encounters with God of all sorts. Uh, and uh, uh, these were written about. Uh, and it was normal if you had an intense mystical life, you'd have a conversation with God, uh, either because you were mentally ill or maybe because uh, God, life was simpler in those days and God was more available to talk to human beings. Hmm. Who knows? But the important thing was uh, there we were meeting Margaret Visser uh, first in Toronto, where indeed she talked about meeting God right there at the University of Toronto. Uh, And then there we were at this, right beside this beautiful church, there was uh, a little uh, nunnery, and the nuns had to survive because there were so much fewer of them. They had created... uh, this place where you could sleep for very little money. So the entire crew was lodged there and it was right next to the church where all the shooting was to happen. Well, I tell you, I don't know what came into me, uh, but from the first shot to the last, it was all planned in my head and it all fit precisely into the time slot they gave me. I still had five or six shots to do when they told me, Paul, this is it. The truck is coming to collect uh, the dolly and your crew is going to be cut off half an hour from now. Well, The crew didn't want to go anywhere. They wanted to stay close until the very end. And uh, <laughs> the truck kept calling to say that traffic was heavy in Rome and he couldn't get there. He came in three hours late. I finished my last shot. Uh, I had a list of shots scribbled on a dirty sheet of paper with like 20 things to do. And when I crossed out the last one, I heard beep beep. It was the truck arriving. uh, And the crew helped to bring up the dolly. Uh, The camera was Canadian, so it came back with us. And it was done. And uh, everything I wanted to put into that film was there. I would say, if I were the least bit religious, that uh, Divine Intervention uh, was uh, helped me make this film. I had no idea that I had uh, such warm feelings for any kind of a church. Um, for uh, the conventional architecture that inspires mystical feelings in people. And I came to have a deeper understanding of why churches and synagogues and mosques exist. Uh, And I thought, oh, this uh, is... uh, something that can be communicated, and that Margaret communicated beautifully. Just interviewing her took three days. She was the only person interviewed in the whole film, and the producers were going bananas. You have only seven days to shoot this, and out of the seven days, you're taking three days to shoot (laughs) an interview with this woman because, of course, she could only talk for about three hours a day. We had to set up the set, that took about an hour and a half to light it all. Then she had she would talk for about three hours. There had to be lunch and so on. Then in early afternoon, everybody was pooped. And the set came down and so on for three days. By the third day, the producers were ready to explode. They thought this was some crazy vanity on my part. But if you have nobody else talking, you got to talk to this person for a long time. Uh, before you have all the material, and I knew exactly what I needed to have, and I would not relent until it was it was done. so it was uh, it was tense like that with the producers. In fact, they fired me one night because I wanted to retain this choir that had been brought in for the occasion, this religious choir. Uh, and I said, no, they can't go home. they said well the the metro stops working in Rome at midnight. You can't let these people go home on foot. I said, I don't know. I don't care. I need to do what I need to do. And you're going to lock that door. After that, you can fire me. So they did try to fire me when I came back to Montreal. But then (laughs) the producer, Colin Neal, went to the studio where the editor was putting together the first part of the film. And Colin came running to my house and he said, Paul, Paul, eh, it looks so beautiful. Have you ever, have you been to the studio? You know what's happening there? And every shot that was being assembled was assembled on my instructions. Uh, There was nothing left to chance and certainly nothing left to the editor's imagination. (laughs) And Colin Neal thought that somehow this was being constructed uh, by magic uh, because the editor was brilliant or huh, what the hell. Yeah. So from that moment on, there was no talk of firing Paul Carvalho anymore. Mm.
1: That, that uh, film won
2: several awards. And it a- won many awards. Hmm. And I was so poor at that point that I couldn't go to Los Angeles to pick up the Gabriel Award i didn't have the money i couldn't pay for the ticket and i could not uh stay in a hotel everybody mm-hmm. was supposed to pay his own fare
1: mm-hmm. it's also been archived
2: yes and it's uh, it uh, it was with uh, the peabody collection films uh this film is a kind of a classic uh, i kind of uh, in a way revived the genre of the intelligent cultured, uh, religious film that a non-religious person, such as myself, could feel perfectly comfortable with because you're looking at religion as a a kind of a poetic construct that allows people to go from early life to old age and to death in a way that is comforting. Uh, And I think we can all relate to that that's what synagogues and mosques do as well, but the uh, Catholic uh, religion, with its traditional churches, does this in its own way. And Margaret could explain exactly why.
1: Oh, what's amazing about your story for me is, uh, as a as a film as a filmmaker as well is like it's always this, there's always like the precipice of disaster mm. or there's like something happens by chance or something correct it's always like hand to mouth and then someone has to make a decision and then it's
2: you know I, I love it so because my question was going to be excuse me yes Saint Agnese for mura di Roma Saint Agnese Saint Agnes is the story of the church that was created to honor Saint Agnes which is you add an E at the end and the Saint Agnese. Fuori le mura means outside of the the, the walls of Rome, because Rome is encircled by walls, and there is another Saint Agnese on Piazza Navona, right there in the center of Rome, inside the walls. So this was the other Saint Agnese, and it was chosen because it's not a grandiose church, as there are so many within Rome. It was just a, a very... Nondescript little church hmm. uh, on in, in 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 what would be a suburb of Rome. Uh, she chose it for that reason because she wanted an ordinary Roman church, and it became the object of pilgrimages. People would read the book, and they would go in groups of twenty and thirty to visit this church wow. and to compare what was on the page and what they saw in front of them.
1: Did you stay in touch with, uh, with Margaret after the film came out?
2: All my life. And she said to me, this film is the visual representation of what I wrote.
1: Nine days.
2: Yeah. Versus four years.
0: Only, only you could have done it probably.
2: I don't know. I don't want to compare myself to others. I don't know what others would have done with this experience. But also, also your, I can, your
0: perspective, because I
2: you're can, not come from a religious background. I can tell you that, oh, my father was a Marxist. My mother was a lapsed a Protestant. Mm-hmm. And they gave me complete freedom to be a Catholic if I wanted to. I went through uh, First Communion. And then 30 days later, you're supposed to go back for confirmation where the priest slaps you and says, you are now a confirmed Catholic for life. Uh, but I did not go back be- because between First Communion and confirmation, I lost my faith entirely. I thought, <laughs> this is an idiotic game. This is not true. This is... My father he says as an anthropologist used to talk about mythology mythology and different mythologies and once you understand the concept of mythology you can slay uh, the religious monster much more easily because that's a sharp knife you've got in you mm.
1: but you still have what you addressed in the in the in the geometry of love is you there's still the kind of the historical story right that kind of omnipresent with religion throughout the evolution of religion.
2: And also, the very poetry uh, that was built uh, into those stones of that church, uh, Mm -hmm. that helps people go through life. And you can only respect that because uh, I was an incredibly well-adjusted boy who really didn't need religion. But as I've gone through life, I realized that many other people Are fragile and they need uh, the church to stave off depression to save their marriages to maintain their sanity uh, to be happier to learn how to a better deal with their children the vicissitudes of life and uh, uh, this I respect enormously there was a time when the priest was not just your priest the priest was your psychologist he was your spiritual guide
1: the bartender
2: Uh, uh, (laughs) 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 well let's not joke about it too much Uh, there was a place for these people uh, that was important and that I respect Uh, but uh, I also respect the beauty of architecture to communicate things that are important to mankind uh, values that are built into the shapes of the things we build Uh, you when you talk about the 1980s, brutalist architecture, uh, you're talking about a brutal people who made that brutalist architecture. It's fascist architecture in the 1980s.
0: Hmm.
2: And uh, when you try to ponder the fact that when people go on vacations, they go to all the little villages in Europe, they go to all the old places that were built up to 1920, 1930, Uh, Before World War II, uh, they don't go to the supermodern places because they have no soul. The modernity we have built has no soul. Mm. Uh, These old places still do, and people uh, have an unquenchable thirst uh, for that mystical elixir that keeps them safe and keeps them growing and keeps them patient and kind uh, to their children.
1: Have you been asked to speak to to aspiring filmmakers? Have you ever given lectures or spoken to to young people about film? Never. What would would, would be your advice to someone who wanted to start making films now?
2: You know... Documentaries. I I would be in a blind and because I loved my profession deeply with a passion, but I think that things have become harder and harder and harder, and I could not in good conscience recommend that you go into filmmaking uh, unless you have that ability to raise money on your own and to transform your iPhone into a powerful tool to shoot films. Uh, I have a friend who's doing just fine with this, getting small commissions, $3,000 a year, $4,000 there, from different institutions that need short films to put on their websites. That kind of thing I was never interested in, and I would never be interested in. Also, I am not a techie type. Uh, it is enormously uh, advantageous if you can uh, be a fiddler uh, with wires, and cameras and so on. Uh, I'm always annoyed by them. I just like to think about the film, imagine it finished, and then take it to fruition.
1: Such a director.
2: By creative Evans leadership. Like that too, yeah? Creative leadership with people who are happy to fiddle and happy to be paid for fiddling. Right. Of course, they're looking at you and on the set, and you look like you're doing nothing. So Why is this guy getting paid all the money when I could be directing this film? I'm the guy who knows how to fiddle, to put it together. They think that because they know a camera or they know how to press the buttons in an editing suite, that they should be the true authors of that film. And sometimes uh, you have to fire people like that. No, why, was, No, why, why do you, keep, dirt, no, why you, why do you keep, keep looking at me? You're, you're looking at me. At me.
1: <laughs> uh, this is I, this is a Paul. This is a, a bigger. Uh, yeah, I, I have. Uh, it's funny because there are producers who look at the director and think the exact same thing, right? Mm-hmm. Which happened to you on the yeah. on the set of the drama I was like What is that guy doing? Yeah. So everybody's looking at the director.
2: So well, the so, director is the one guy who seems to have no function. He's everybody is stressed out trying to set up the rig, uh, trying to. Uh, He's the create, axle. Create the framing. And the, the the director's going around schmoozing with this one, schmoozing with that one. What the hell does he know? Was <laughs> well, he? He's a fraud. He's I, a, I, I the
0: axle of the wheel. The, spokes the, going the around. The, right? the director. Right
1: in the middle. Right? Paul, Paul, I've, I've also produced, i am been producing now, but I, before I directed, I produced and wrote. And I've seen so many situations, though, with directors where it's where, you know, there's an expression in documentary where your film is found in the editing room mm. where... The director had no clue what they were... I'm not mentioning names. I, can, I guess I can put myself on that list where the director didn't know what he was doing and it was the editor that found the film, right? Because of Either because they were at a limited amount of production days or they didn't have the story in mind or the serendipity of what they were shooting was different than what they imagined or the character. And the editor had at, at that point had to come through and save the director's ass because the film he wanted to make was not the film that was actually on, on, in the footage.
2: I've even heard horror stories where a director would come with a whole pile of footage and push it towards the editor and say, find me the film in there. Tell the story. I find that atrocious. Uh, This could not be... That is going to be a horrible film. Mm. Uh, There is no two ways around it. If you don't come in with a vision, if you're not the inspired guy, you are nothing, and your film is crap. Uh, So... That's why directors are paid the big bucks uh, to come in with a vision and to hold on to it. And how do they know that you have the vision? Because they've seen it, you delivered in the past, and you created something that moves them and that shows your expertise. What is my expertise if I do not even know where the on button of the camera is? What is my expertise if I forget from one film to another how to put together... Two bits of film in in two two takes in order to uh, create a scene. Now, I once uh, had an assistant here was 25 years old, and I said to her, "I'm sorry, it's been two and a half years since I made my last film. You're going to have to teach me the basics again." And she was most um, helpful. She uh, took me through all the basics, and I quickly. Start saying, Oh, yeah, that's how it is. Oh, yeah, this and that. Why did I forget these basic things? Because somewhere in my mind it was clear that these things are not important. That what is important is the vision uh, for the film. And sometimes that vision fails you. I once, my last film here was about Ernest Cormier, uh, who was the uh, uh, creator the architect of the University of Montreal. It was a fantastic story uh, for which I could spend a lot of time that we don't have. Uh, but uh, oh, I could not find the correct beginning and the correct ending of the story. I thought I had it, and yet it wasn't working. I needed outside help. I, there was a, this woman was director of a festival. I cannot mention her name, but on the QT, I paid her a considerable amount of money to tell me what was wrong. She told me I came back to her with a film that had a completely different ending, a completely different beginning and several differences in the middle. What was wrong? Well, I was aging, but also the cancer and that caught up with me was already progressing even then and it was tiring me out and it was blurring my vision. Uh, So uh, I, instead of taking the proverbial five or ten weeks in editing, I took nine months in the editing suite uh, until it was done. Uh, uh, But uh, uh, the film in French is called In Tour Sur La Montagne. Uh,
1: Available also on Radio-Canada.
2: Yes, correct. In this film, actually, I thought, well, it's my last, and I don't care how they play it, when they play it. Don't tell me when. I'm out of here. (laughs) I've had a couple of uh, very uh, uh, kind friends who've come out of their way to say, Paul, that was such a beautiful film. It was so touching, and it was so illuminating. Uh, because I managed to get into the um, home life of Ernest Cormier. Not only did he create the University of Montreal, not only did he design the Supreme Court of Canada in Ottawa, (laughs) but this guy lived with two sisters um, to one another uh, who were both his lovers. (laughs) and these women were women without education Uh, he met them when they were probably 15 16 17 years old minors undoubtedly and he stayed with them for 60 years uh, as lovers but he designed his home which is now the trudeau home on pine avenue uh, so Mm -hmm. that there would be a very private discreet entrance for these women to come in and out not the front entrance of the house but at an entrance right next to the entrance of the help of the servants so you could never be sure as you saw these women coming in and out whether they were servants or not and so <laughs> this all these peculiar things in this film made it fantastically rich and tasty for a general audience of course i also talked about how he made each one of his great real i, I did In 52 minutes, I told the story of his masterworks, including the seven doors of the United Nations that were Canada's gift to the United Nations. And he created these beautiful figures, each representing uh, elements of uh, the thinking, the values of the United Nations, such as justice, such as peace. And he himself designed uh, these beautiful figures And he was present here in Montreal while these doors were being designed. So this, to me, was heaven. Uh, But finding the personal history uh, that was confirmed to us by people who were there, who witnessed it, that was something else. Nine months just for the editing. Um, Radio-Canada, when I sent them the film, said, oh my God, we lost that film from sight. That's you, is it? Uh, You're (laughs) finally coming through. Uh, uh, We thought we'd never see your film finished. I thought uh, that I wouldn't either. I got paid. I thought that is my last film. And uh, maybe a year or two later, I fell ill with my current illness. So I knew that that was done. But I've kept on going with creative projects that don't involve raising the money and making films which is all exceedingly strenuous. Uh that will be for another day. I think you have enough in your No podcast. please tell but what what tell
1: us what a little bit about, about that? About uh since 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 the the um oh, broadcast what, of that film in twenty nineteen.
2: What time is it,
1: please? It's uh three thirty. Okay. Ten more minutes. <laughs> okay.
2: Yeah. This is the proof of a film of a photo book uh, by Patricia Schwartz. Did uh, I take a photo? Yes. I am the writer, but I'm also the publisher of the book. And uh, there will be a bilingual English-French edition as well. Patricia Schwartz was my friend for 50 years. Patricia was large, so the, the book is called Small, Medium, large we went when we went to school together she was taking photos of the most beautiful girls at the san francisco art institute where i was also a student and uh, that was the svelte period and then she said to hell with it i'm going to take photos of large women because i am large and uh not only was she Photographer of the cause. She was also a great photographer. Uh, And uh, as you see, this is art photography at the highest level in my considered opinion. Uh, And I then created her life story in search of substance becoming Patricia Schwartz. And uh, uh, I talked about, see, That's a photo I took of Patricia. This is the photo she took of me at the exact same moment. Hmm? Nice mustache. Mm -hmm. And we were together at that point, we were at the Mexico City Anthropology Museum, one of the greatest museums of pre-Columbian art in the world. This is Patricia's Jewish family. Again, Jews in my life. and uh, we kept on going. Patricia tried desperately to lose weight, and so on and so forth. Her, her. Uh, uh, oh, where is this book available? This book, this is the pr- the proof. There will be only a hundred copies of this book. It's costing me many thousands of dollars to, and it, it will be available on my websites and also on Amazon, uh, on Squarespace, other things like that there will be somebody in charge of the distribution. And I'm mulling it over, but it will not be cheap. It will probably cost $75 and upwards uh, because the investment was rather massive um, to create it. But the important thing for me was that this would be done. And it took me, again, four to five years to do this. Patricia died and left all of her stuff in the basement of a home in Berkeley. I had to get it out of there and I had to ship it by UPS across the continent to my own address. And then I had to hire people to help me go through everything and to scan those photos that were worthy, the worthy scanned slides. upwards of 1,000, if you can imagine, just the slides, not counting the prints, not counting the negatives. So this was another massive uh, undertaking involving photography. But I seemed to be ready for these mega challenges. And so one day the book was done. Although I drove the um, art designer crazy uh, who would say to me, Okay, this is the last, right? I'm gonna write down last uh, book, the uh, last final, final, he would say, and then it would be final, final, and then it would be final, final, final. And, and I would say, Yes, but not really. Hmm. And he would say, Quand est-ce que ça va être prêt? <laughs> And I would say, On va finir. One day, we'll get it done. He said, yeah, but you said that it would go to the printers by April 1st. And here we are at the end of July. I said, I tell you, you got to stay with the program. But once he saw the book actually printed with the cover, the front and the back, he believed. He became a convert and he shut up all the griping stopped uh, because he realized that it could be done. Uh, And uh, I myself, when I had it in my hands, thought this transcends my expectations. It is what I wanted to do. The important thing when you write any kind of a book or you make any kind of a film is that it is for you first. You're the first spectator. And so you have to please yourself um, unless it's a miserable commission where they have all the say and you have none. Uh, And sometimes you have to do those too. Uh, So uh, I managed to do the Patricia book. There's only one remaining thing on the shelf to be done. And that is um, a humorous, comical fantasy book for young adults and that I have been writing for years. I don't know if I have enough time to finish it. I, I've written about a third of it. Uh, is there enough time to write the rest? If you go too fast, you spoil it.
0: Hmm.
2: It dictates its own pace. To avoid being too scared by the prospect, I got all these fountain pens and I wrote the book first by fountain pen, and then I would transcribe it at the end of the day, transcribe that page or page and a half onto the computer, because the computer is a very cold process. You're like some soulless machine writing into the computer. It's hard to feel intimacy with the spoken word uh, a bit, with a fountain pen, I assure you that it keeps your warm relationship between the, the thought, the ink, and the page. And so it was a joy to do it. Uh, now I'm pondering, do I have time to finish? Uh, and again, who will publish it? Uh, That's even secondary. Cynthia will be in charge of all my literary affairs, including this book. And so she'll be able to decide where this book would go. Uh, But that, guys, is for another day. Uh, I had uh, the greatest passion for my profession. I did things that astound me even today. Uh, I didn't do everything I wanted to do, but I did so much more than I ever thought I would manage to do at this time, in this historical setting, in this history, in this city, Uh, because we're all hamstrung by the limitations of our times. Uh, How to overcome them, to realize your dreams, is the most difficult thing. Uh, occasionally I managed to, I lucked into things, I I beat them down, I I pleaded and I got stuff. I also make some dogs, uh, which I worked very hard on, but it's inevitable if you're going to struggle to make stuff, sometimes it's not going to work and it's going to take you years to realize why didn't it work? I put so much of myself into it. Uh, but subjects come with their inherent limitations. If you have an inherently weak main character, you will not be good. If you have a, um, a story in which there is not enough uh, fear, not enough is at stake. Things have to be at stake. Mm.
0: Uh,
2: things have to life and death issues love where you can lose love uh social limitations of all sorts that you must overcome Um, if you do this uh, and you work on those subjects you'll be more successful i fell in love with things sometimes for their aesthetic value that's not enough people don't give a fig for aesthetic values they want to see uh the human mind is attracted to danger. They want to see collisions. They want to see the overcoming of difficulties. Uh, they want to see uh, the uh, difficulty in becoming human and uh, they want to identify with that. Uh, I could have uh, learned those lessons much earlier to be more successful. But luckily, I had enough Uh, in me to make not only the dogs, but the good films, Uh, and not only one or two, but enough that uh, it's slaked my thirst uh, for uh, the creative accomplishment that I craved. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Well, it's remarkable. For
1: it's, with us. it's remarkable, and uh, I, I mean, I know we have to, we have to wrap because you're, you're, you're tired. Um, but you know, you the stories that you've told as an artist, as a filmmaker, uh, it's not just like the adjectives of perseverance and passion. And you've actually just, the way you story tell, like on the precipice of like of, uh, of abandoning a project or almost being fired or, or having to meet the, the boss of the, the, the chief, you know, the commissioning producer to convince them. Right. And then not only is your film made, but then six, five movies are made. It's a, it's a remarkable, uh, mm. it's a remarkable path. Mm. Thank you. And it's, uh, it makes me think that you are you know, you've ch- chosen, I mean, to get, the, to get through there and to persevere. And
2: mm.
1: I mean, that's really the takeaway message is your the passion creates the, that perseverance and drive and focus.
2: And on top of that, you have to have the ability to accumulate uh, different skills that regular human beings do not usually carry in their back, backpacks. You have to learn many skills that were not part of your skill set and that may be very uncomfortable to acquire. When I began this, I could not read uh, A contract from beginning to end. My eyes crossed. I fell asleep before page three. But then I realized that this must be done, man. And you're going to carry this damn contract with you until you've read it and read it again and read it once more uh, so that you are comfortable with everything in it because it is important to you. What are they going to pay? Yes, but when are they going to pay? And uh, what are the deliverables? What exactly are you giving them? Uh,
1: How long are they going to hold on to your film before you can resell it somewhere else?
2: Exactly. These things are enormously important, and maybe they come naturally to you, but not to me. Uh, Maybe you can fiddle with all things technical, and then I can't. So I was much too dependent on people who did, and who sometimes felt a false sense of superiority because they did, and I didn't. Uh, Once I got so mad that I thought I'll never again work with an editor. From now on, I am the editor. And so I hired somebody just to sit by my side and to help me uh, with the vicissitudes of editing, uh, because I'd be working there and suddenly everything would disappear. (laughs) on the screen, it would go somewhere else. And I'd be desperate. Doesn't matter. The lady I hired knew how to bring it back. And uh, so from film to film, I learned how to edit. It was a long time before I could trust somebody again to edit, but always in my house, under my eyes. And I would give them the instructions in the morning and I would check in the early afternoon to see what he had accomplished, uh, because people think that because they can fiddle with an editing machine, they can edit a film. No, 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 no. the The editing doesn't begin in the editing machine. The editing begins in your head. Did you
1: use uh, Did you use transcripts? Of and course. you would and you would you would transcribe your films.
2: Absolutely. Okay, in but... the old days, you would uh, use. Transcripts, and you would pay a transcript person who would take weeks and charge your fortune. And then AI came into the picture. You just fed it into some website that, in three minutes, gave you all your transcripts uh, that were close enough yeah. for you to work with. And uh, but you have to absolutely work with transcripts. Hmm. The uh, technology has become much more capable. Uh, Infinitely more uh, supple and malleable and fluid uh, but you're still working with human beings who are as glitchy, as difficult, as unpredictable, and as devious as they always were.
1: yeah well as, as a director you're also you're also a social worker and a psychologist and mm-hmm. uh, depending on the size of the crew mm-hmm. I like think the the producer would probably say the same thing. So, you're you're managing personalities around you creatively, creative personalities.
2: Correct. And if you're the producer and the director, then all the more so. You have to, of course, avoid uh, having your ego run away with you. And that can happen. Uh, You have to avoid becoming tyrannical with your staff. That can happen. Uh, But you cannot give any signs of weakness because that's human nature. Part of us or hyenas waiting for your weak moment so that they can pounce. Uh, and uh, you have to maintain that leadership. you got to make it clear. Unfortunately, you have to make it clear who is boss. Guys, that's it. Thank you.
1: Paul, well, we thank go. you so much. Great pleasure.
0: Sure. Guys. you have been generous.
2: Very good. Okay.
1: Maybe. See you in the backyard on Grand uh, Boulevard, hopefully yes. soon. Oh, I really want that. Yeah. That's, a, that's what you all mean. I, I would, no that's... problem. Hopefully uh, Noah and Crystal, his wife, can come done as well then. Then Yeah. I think Cynthia will be tickled because he thinks very highly.
0: So uh, thank you guys for sticking with us through that podcast. I think it was something really special and uh, our next pod- podcast uh, is going to come out fairly shortly. It's
1: yes. Again, thanks for listening, everyone. It's on uh, producer Pietro Sarapulia, who also has uh, quite a remarkable story from, uh, from the NFB to IMAX. And uh, we recorded that in a, in a cafe in West mountain. That was also a wonderfully long and rambling and fun podcast. So we look forward to, uh, to listening and supporting the uh supporting us thank you
0: yes and let's not be lazy filmmakers ever
1: ever ever thank you evan thanks thanks Noah.